This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church, and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Joanna, Israel, Caleb F., Levi, and Susanna. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Joanna, who asks, In Psalm 2, verse 4, why does God laugh at people in derision? Let's take a look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2 reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And here's the key verse, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Joanna In this passage, the psalmist is personifying God as a human ruler. There's an army that's being raised to overthrow him in those first three verses. But compared to God, they are so powerless that there's not even a hint of a threat. Now, these kings, the psalmist says, are of the earth, while God sits in the heavens. In other words, his enemies can't even reach him, let alone knock him off his throne. So, David describes God's reaction the way a human ruler might react when faced with such an absurd challenge. In other words, he laughs. He holds them in derision, which means that he doesn't respect their power or feel threatened by it. Instead, when he speaks to them in his wrath, David sings, it is them who will be terrified. And now Israel wants to know, Why did Pharaoh's daughter not kill Moses when she found him? Well, this is a good question, Israel, because after all, it was her father who'd issued the order to have the innocents massacred, which led Moses to being hidden in the first place. So you'd think that her first instinct would be to carry out her father's orders. Now, maybe she didn't realize that this lost baby was one of the Israelites who'd been targeted. Although, if that was the case, it'd be kind of strange the way that she chooses a Hebrew nurse for the child. Exodus 2 just tells us one thing, that when she saw Moses, she took pity on him. And in human terms, I think that probably explains everything. No matter what her father commanded, when she was faced with the human reality of that horrible order, she responded with compassion. In a larger sense, of course, she was moved by God's providential hand, because from the very beginning, God had plans for Moses. He had raised this child up to be the deliverer of his people, a forerunner of Jesus, who would deliver his people from their sin. And now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Caleb F. Let's give Caleb a round of applause. Here's Caleb's question, and it's a complicated one. He asks, what does the beast's number mean? Why is it the same as man's? Is man as powerful as the beast? He's referring here to Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. Caleb, 
let me admit right now that I don't know the answer. And I don't feel bad saying that because the fact is nobody knows for certain. It's a fascinating mystery, one that people have been debating about for about 2,000 years or so. Now, I'll give you an overview of some of the theories, but I want to be clear at the outset that these are theories, not facts. So let's begin with some context. In Revelation 13, John introduces us to two beasts, one that rises from the sea in verse 1 and one that rises from the earth in verse 11. Now, the dragon from back in chapter 12, who seems to be Satan, gives power to the first beast who receives, quote, authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. That phrase might sound familiar. In Revelation 5, the Lamb, Jesus, ransoms people for God by shedding his blood, and these people come from every tribe and language and people and nation. So, whoever or whatever the beast is, he's in opposition to Jesus. Either you serve Jesus or you serve the beast. The people of God have God's name on their foreheads, and the people of the beast have his name on their foreheads. Basically, everyone who doesn't worship and serve the true God worships and serves the beast. In fact, the description of the first beast ends with these words of John. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In other words, we're warned about the beast so that we will not serve him, but instead remain faithful to Christ. Okay, so now the second beast is introduced, who adds power to the first one. So much power that literally... Everyone has to take his mark except for those who are faithful to the Lamb. Now, the mark is the name of the beast or his number. And the chapter ends with these words. It says, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So that gets us to our question, what does the number 666 mean, and in what way is it the number of a man? I think we can at least say for certain that however we answer this question, however we identify the beast, it has to be a person or thing that everyone worships and serves if they do not worship and serve the true God. One of the most popular approaches to interpreting the number is something called gematria. It's based on the fact that in Hebrew and Greek, some letters were used to represent numbers as well. So if you wrote your name, the letters of your name might also give you a numeric value. Now you can try this at home. Take the letters of your name and replace them with the number corresponding to each letter's place in the alphabet. For example, my first name is John, spelled J-O-N. Now, J is the tenth letter of the alphabet, so that would be a 10. O is the letter number 15 in the alphabet, and so that would be a 15. And then N is the 14th letter, so that's a 14. So, If the letter of the man that we're looking for in this chapter was 10, 15, 14, then his name might be John, and then you'd need to be really nervous whenever I was around. But it's a little more complicated than this 
when you're thinking of Hebrew because Hebrew is written without the vowels. So three letters might be used to make a name that's actually longer than three letters. So when you work with Hebrew, 666 will actually produce a number of different words. Here's an interesting tidbit. One of the words that you can derive from 666 in Hebrew is actually the word beast itself. Another one is Nero. Nero was a Roman emperor who was famous for persecuting the early church, and that's led a lot of people to identify the beast with Nero. But using the same method, you can also get Hitler and Stalin out of 666. In fact, depending on how you go about it, you can get a lot of different results. In his commentary on Revelation, Greg Beale quotes one scholar who says, We cannot infer too much from the fact that a key fits the lock if it is a lock in which almost any key will turn. In other words, this method, as popular as it is, doesn't really seem to work. It can be used to produce nearly any name you want it to. But if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, there is another possibility that opens up. Remember, the first beast description ended with a call for Christians to endure faithfully. I think the number of the beast, which ends the second description, is meant to do the same thing. After all, the very next words in the very next chapter give us a vision of the Lamb and all his faithful followers standing firm on Mount Zion. They don't have the name or number of the beast on them. Instead, they have the Lamb's name and his Father's name written on their foreheads, just like the priests of Israel had tied on their foreheads the words, Holy to the Lord. Again, if the worshipers of the true God have his name on them, and everyone else has the name of the beast, to identify the beast, we need to know who everyone else worships and serves. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes the sinful human condition this way. He says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. That's Romans 1 verse 25. Now, creature here means a created thing. Instead of the Creator, they worship and serve something that he created. In other words, man. I suspect that when John says 666 is the number of a man, he means it's a man's number. To worship the beast is to worship the creature rather than the creator. Every human system of idolatry, every sinful kingdom is summed up in the image of the beast. Paul even says that sinners exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, beasts. Idolatry lowers and demeans us. As human beings, we were made to reflect God's glory. When we try to reflect our own glory instead, we are less than what we were made to be. We are incomplete. In this light, it's interesting to note that while seven is the number of completion in scripture, the number of man is six. Humans were created on the sixth day, after all, yet we don't reach the completion of creation until the seventh day. Revelation uses seven and multiples of seven to symbolize God's completeness. 
In Revelation, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls all feature a judgment on the followers of the beast, and those are the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, and the sixth bowl, 666. In each sequence, the seventh seal, trumpet, and bowl depict the consummated kingdom of Jesus Christ. Basically, six represents incompleteness, unwholeness, maybe even disorder. And three sixes is a way of emphasizing the disorder. Just as the angels repeat holy, holy, holy to emphasize the perfect holiness of God, maybe 666 emphasizes the absolute unholiness of the worship of self. Now, we could go on and on. I haven't even scratched the surface here, but personally, I find this symbolic approach, Scripture interpreting Scripture, much more suggestive and helpful than the gematria approach that we talked about earlier. Now, some people would object, hey, can't everything you've said about the beast as a creature, a disordered man, be true, and the number still points to a specific prophetic person? Well, yeah, I guess so. But let me say this. If you follow my interpretation, then you'll get the benefit from these passages that John intends. You'll be encouraged in your faithfulness and on guard against man-made idols and the satanic influence behind them. Whereas, if you fixate on the idea that there's just one threat, and we don't even know who that is, you might find it harder to receive the encouragement that John intends. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Levi asks, what is the oldest thing you own? Well, Levi, I have a 1796 pattern cavalry saber in my office. It's probably one of the oldest things I have, although I did a little research, and I think it was actually made in the 1800s just following that older pattern. I do, however, have a book about sword fighting that was published in 1798. It's full of old engraved illustrations, and it's bound in shagreen, which is a kind of ray skin that was often used on sword handles. If I have anything older than that, I can't think of it. And now Susanna wants to know, has Danny ever fallen asleep during one of your sermons? Well, of course not, Susanna. People never fall asleep in my sermons. Danny is a person, therefore Danny never falls asleep in my sermons. That's logic. And you know, if somebody did fall asleep in one of my sermons, that might not actually be a bad thing. My voice would carry to their subconscious mind, and maybe they would hear things that they're trying not to hear. Who knows? Now, if you ever see someone nodding off or just resting their eyes during church, you have my permission to give them a friendly nudge. In the old days, men with long pipes used to knock people over the head when they fell asleep in church. They were called church wardens, which is still what we call those long-stemmed Gandalf-style pipes to this day. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.